Welcome to Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, when an acclaimed novelist publishes their first new work in 20 years, people take notice. When the first book was Arundhati Roy's The God of Small Things, the interest is especially intense. She was awarded the esteemed Booker Prize for the best novel in the English language in 1997. Roy's new work is The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. The novel concerns, as she suggests in the text itself, quote, the vast, violent, circling, driving, ridiculous, insane, unfeasible public turmoil of a nation. That nation is India, and its divisions and tumults are central, but the themes are global, timely, and even otherworldly. The work has been compared to Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. At this event, Roy read from her much-anticipated second novel and spoke with the Elliott Bay Book Company's Rick Simonson about her writing process, her political and social activism, her nonfiction work, and the complexities of life in India. Sonia Harris recorded this Town Hall Seattle event on June 27th. Here, Rick Simonson opens the conversation. The book we're here for tonight, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, is a book that has now been in the world three weeks. It was published three weeks ago tonight, in fact, today, in fact, um, all over the world in English. It is a book um, some of us who know Arundhati Roy had really not asked anymore about. We were happy enough getting the other books. We still, and, but every once you'd say, you know, I am working on this book. Uh, there are stories to the, the writing of this book, but the importance, I think, tonight is to really get this book heard from, and some of you in the three weeks I know have been reading it. An extraordinary, complex, rich, beautiful book, um, one that, that um, delves into, um, I, I, almost, I was telling someone I thought it was this resolutely Indian book, and yet some of the book actually comes over here, um, this part of the country. There's a, one of the pivotal characters at a point in the book is, is over, ends up in California. But it is a book very much of and from India, where she, uh, for all the travails she's been in the middle of, um, very much continues to live in and act and write from. It's a book that of, of depth and voice. I, there's, the reviews are all speak, and you, they're easy enough to find the, the range of them. But for me, this other form of hearing about getting, you know, hearing about this book was that when uh, her agent and she brought the book to the U.S. last fall to be looked at by U.S. publishers, um, it's a process they, by which they send, you know, they send the books around and uh, the manuscript, and, and people read it. Actually, they read it in haste, and they have to make decisions about to. to try and publish it or not based on all sorts of things. And um, she, she chose wisely and a wonderful editor, wonderful publisher. But I was just in New York about a month ago and uh, saw many of these people who had bid on the book. We were talking about various things and I mentioned this book. And they, to a person, woman and man, said this book was so amazing and they wished they'd gotten to publish it. But it, they, had, they only wished the best for it. Um, which is not always the case, there's often um, kind of the small-minded, you know, small-hearted things at work. But they all did want this book um, to really be in the world in a good way because they think it's an important and vital one. Um, the, not only the story it tells, but the, the, the language she tells it in, which I think with so much 
as good as, the, good as novels are that are in first person, present tense narrative where the book kind of goes along in a flat plane. This book has a, has a real depth and range. I was thinking tonight of all that uh, Arndita Roy has done and stood for in her writing, her, her embrace of, of literature but also of the world and, and its politics self. And it made me think of a night two years ago, almost two years ago, when the great actor, singer, activist Harry Belafonte was on the stage at Meany Hall. He was in a conversation with uh, Valerie Curtis Newton, an eminent director, theater director, and the night had its course. And Harry Belafonte is 88 years old. He's, he's 90 now. He was 88 two years ago. He's someone who has been politically active as well as creatively active for 70 years and has lived um, large and long, or he know, he's, he's lived in lar the large and long of it. He's been around, he was, he was in the March on Washington. If you saw the James Baldwin film, I'm Not Your Negro, he has this amazing line and a TV clip in there. Harry Belafonte was asked about Black Lives Matter at this night two years ago. And he said, it was this great and necessary and vital thing that they were doing, totally um, necessary and good and um, heartening. He says, but, he said, and he said this in a way for all of us, he said, we have to know the ground we are standing on. And he said, what we have to do, besides being active, is read. We have to read radical thinking, radical thought. And, and he name-checked all those iconic civil rights activists, you know, by first names. He says, we all read, we all read that way, we read radical, radically. We didn't read enough. But, so that's what I would say, you have to read radical thinking and radical, radical thought. And so tonight, um, I would like to say that in having the person here we, who is about to be up here, we have such a person who has written that way uh, with radical imagination, radical vision, radical intelligence, radical beauty, and with radical heart. Please welcome Arundhati Roy. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming and for greeting me with love. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 it's hard for me to really pick apart from this book to read because it ranges over landscapes which are all interconnected in strange ways. But um, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and read from the middle of the book, and then maybe in the conversation, things will become a little clearer. So the, the chapter that I'm going to read is called The Tenant. And uh, it's about a woman called Tilotama, who uh, has just stolen a baby. From a, uh, uh, in Delhi, there's this place called Jantar Mantar, where very many protest movements converge and some, there are people who have been on hunger strike for years and there are nuts and ideal, ideologues and real resistance movements and um, artists and so this baby suddenly appears right next to the group of Kashmiri 
mothers for the disappeared, who don't know what to do with the baby that's appeared. And then, uh, uh, anyway, uh, so Tilotama, the, 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 nobody knows what to do with the baby, and finally they call the police, and then the police come, the baby has disappeared, because Tilotama has just taken it and run. So, this is the chapter called The Tenant. It, it starts with a quote of Jean Genet, which says, then as she had already died four or five times, the apartment had remained available for a drama more serious than her own death. The spotted owlet on the street light ducked and bobbed with the delicacy and immaculate manners of a Japanese businessman. He had an unobstructed view through the window of the small bare room and the odd bare woman on the bed. She had an unobstructed view of him too. Some nights she bobbed back and said, Moshi Moshi, which was all the Japanese she knew. Even indoors, the walls radiated a bullying, unyielding heat. The slow ceiling fan stirred the scorched air, layering it with fine cindery dust. The room showed signs of celebration. The balloons tied to the window grill bumped into each other desultorily, softened and shriveled by the heat. In the center, on a low painted stool, was a cake with bright strawberry icing and sugar flowers, a candle with a charred wick, a matchbox, and a few used matchsticks. On the cake, it said, Happy birthday, Miss Jubin. The cake had been cut, a small piece eaten. The icing had melted and dribbled onto the silver foil covered cardboard cake base. Ants were making off with crumbs larger than themselves. Black ants, pink crumbs. The baby whose birthday and baptism ceremonies had been simultaneously celebrated and successfully concluded was fast asleep. Her kidnapper, who went by the name of S. Tilotma, was awake and concentrating. She could hear her hair growing. It sounded like something crumbling, a burnt thing crumbling, coal, toast, moths crisped on a light bulb. She remembered reading somewhere that even after people died, their hair and nails kept growing like starlight traveling through the universe long after the stars themselves had died, like cities, fizzy, effervescent, simulating the illusion of life while the planet they had plundered died around them. She thought of the city at night, of cities at night, discarded constellations of old stars fallen from the sky, rearranged on earth in patterns and pathways and towers, invaded by weevils that have learned to walk upright. A weevil philosopher with a grave manner and a sharp mustache was teaching a class, reading aloud from a book. Admiring young weevils strained to catch each word that spilled from his wise weevil lips. Nietzsche believed that if pity were to become the core of ethics, misery would become contagious and happiness an object of suspicion. The youngsters scratched away on their little notepads. Schopenhauer, on the other hand, believed that pity is and ought to be the supreme weevil virtue. But long before them, Socrates asked the key question, why should we be moral? 
He had lost a leg in Weevil World War IV, this professor, and carried a cane. His remaining five legs were in excellent condition. Airbrush graffiti sprayed on the back wall of his classroom said, evil weevils always make the cut. Other creatures crowded into the already crowded classroom. An alligator with a human skin purse, a grasshopper with good intentions, a fish on a fast, a fox with a flag, a maggot with a manifesto, a neocon newt, an icon iguana, a communist cow, an owl with an alternative, a lizard on TV. Hello and welcome, you're watching Lizard News at nine. There's been a blizzard on Lizard Island. The baby was the beginning of something. This much the kidnapper knew. Her bones had whispered this to her that night. The said night, the concerned night, the aforementioned night, the night hereinafter referred to as the night, when she made her move on the pavement. And her bones were nothing if not reliable informants. The baby was Miss Jabin returned. Returned, that is, not to her. Miss Jabin the first was never hers, but to the world. Miss Jabin the second, when she was grown to be a lady, would settle accounts and square the books. Miss Jabin would turn the tide. There was hope yet for the evil, weevil world. Naga asked Tilo for one good reason why she was leaving him. Did he not love her? Had he not been caring, considerate, generous, understanding? Why now, after all these years? He said 14 years was enough time for anyone to get over anything, provided they wanted to get over it. People had been through much worse. Oh, that, she said, I got over all that long ago. I'm happy and well adjusted now, like the people of Kashmir. I've learned to love my country. I may even vote in the next election. He let that pass. He said she should think about seeing a psychiatrist. Thinking made her throat ache. That was a good reason not to think about seeing a psychiatrist. Naga had started wearing tweed coats and smoking cigars like his father did, and talking to servants in the imperious way that his mother did. Termites on toast, khadi loincloths, and the rolling stones were a forgotten, fever dream from a past life. Naga's mother, who lived alone on the ground floor of the big house, his father, Ambassador Shiv Shankar Hariharan, had died, advised him to let Tilo go. She won't be able to manage on her own. She'll beg you to take her back. Naga knew otherwise. Thilo would manage, and even if she didn't, there would be no begging. He sensed she was drifting on a tide that neither he nor she could do much about. He couldn't tell whether her restlessness, her compulsive and increasingly unsafe wandering through the city marked the onset of an unsoundness of mind or an acute, perilous kind of sanity. Or were they both the same thing? The only thing he could attribute her newfound restiveness to was her mother's bizarre passing, which he thought odd, given that it was a relationship that had barely existed. True, Thilo had been at her bedside during the last two weeks in hospital. But other than that, she had seen her mother only a few times in the past several years. 
Naga was right in one sense, but wrong in another. Her mother's death had released Tilo from an internment that nobody, including she herself, had been aware of because it had passed itself off as something quite the opposite, a peculiar insular independence. For all of her adult life, Tillo had defined and shaped herself by marking off and maintaining a distance between herself and her mother. When that was no longer necessary, something frozen began to thaw and something unfamiliar began to take its place. Naga's pursuit of Tillo had not turned out as planned. She was meant to be just another easy conquest, yet another woman who had succumbed to his irreverent brilliance and edgy charm and had her heart broken. But Tillo had crept up on him and become a kind of com compulsion, an addiction almost. Addiction has its own mnemonics, skin, smell, the length of the loved one's fingers, in Tillo's case, it was the slant of her eyes, the shape of her mouth, the almost invisible scar that slightly altered the symmetry of her lips and made her look defiant even when she did not mean to, the way her nostrils flared and announcing her displeasure even before her eyes did, the way she held her shoulders, the way she sat on the pot stark naked and smoked cigarettes. So many years of marriage, the fact that she was not young anymore and did nothing to pretend otherwise didn't change the way he felt because it had to do with more than all that. It was the haughtiness, despite the question mark over her stock, as his mother had not hesitated to put it. It had to do with the way she lived in the country of her own skin, a country that issued no visas and seemed to have no consulates. True, it had never been a particularly friendly country, even at the best of times. But its borders were sealed and the regime of more or less complete isolationism began only after the train wreck at the Shiraz cinema. Naga married Tilo because he was never really able to reach her. And because he couldn't reach her, he couldn't let her go. Of course, that raises another question why did Tillo marry Naga? A generous person would say it was because she needed shelter. A less generous view would be that it was because she needed cover. Although his was only a small part in the story, in Naga's mind, before and after Shiraz, sometimes took on the overtones of BC and AD. Thank you. I don't think anyone would mind if you kept reading. That was lovely. <laughs> I didn't say much about the book in, in its particulars, that it's set in Delhi and it's set in Kashmir primarily, and that there's a story of, of a hijra uh, named Anjum that's one whole part of this story, and then there's, as you read from part of this story with Tilo and these three men that she knows over a period of time, how, how did these come to you, and, and, um, and then how did they come together as a, as, a, as a book? Well, you know, they just, they just began to drop in on me. 
and then they just started to hang around a lot, and then they just moved in, and they wouldn't go away. And um, I, I, um, people often ask me, you know, why did it take you so long to write another novel? And, and to me, um, the thing is that I, I just knew that I had to wait. To me, novel, a novel is never business. It's never a duty. It's a prayer. It's a song. It's a, and, and all you can do is wait for it to come to you, you know? Uh, and um, I, I also felt that, um, you know, I mean, I, 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 don't, I actually don't know how to explain it, but maybe on the one hand, suddenly becoming very famous because you wrote a book, there's this uh, pressure, it's a sort of, the people, uh, you know, there's a domestication that happens where, you know, generally you're expected to write the God of Small Things 2 and then the Son of the God of Small Things. <laughs> and, you know, and, I, I, and, and also I think fiction itself, uh, you know, maybe because the speed at which things are sold and how you have to sell books to people who haven't read them or whatever it is, you know, suddenly it's become like a Hollywood thing. You have to explain in six verbs what the book is about or something. Or, and you have to sign contracts and you have to have publishers breathing down your neck. And I just uh, didn't want that. You know, I wanted, to, I wanted to see how fiction as a form could be pushed to do things that only fiction can do. So how can I write a book that is not masquerading as a film script or as a history book, as a newspaper or as an ideology with animated characters that are playing out some prefabricated theme of mine. And yet, how can you capture the, the, the terror, the beauty, the poetry, the complexity, the fact that in the modern world, even in India now, we don't have a Second, which is a second, because in that second you are getting text messages and emails and internet and someone sitting. You know, it's all those shattered se seconds. And so, how do you? It is an experiment with with the form of the book. It's with the form of mm -hmm. fiction itself for me. Well, it, reading it, I mean, I think I'm sure many of people here, everyone was so excited to get this book, and you want to race into the book, and yet. And this was mirrored by what people in New York said about reading, they have to read these things quickly, but it was, then you realize this book doesn't want you, it doesn't feel like it wants you and to read that way. It wants you to slow down. Those characters really, there is a sense that they've lived, those who have a length of their lives have it, and there's something that comes out in the writing that way that you convey that this character wasn't just quickly conceived and was lived with a while. Um, do you, I mean, do you find, do you, you, you pick up a book and you read it different speeds, different ways, do you think? No, I, I mean, I, I, uh, I don't want to speed through anything ever, you know? So not even a meal or, right. you know? The only thing I'm speeding through seems to be the book tour, which is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's also because I want to get back home. Uh, but, but the thing is that um, I think all over the world, I mean, surely in America and in India, not, 
not in similar ways, in unique and separate ways. There is something psychotic unfolding in the air, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not that we haven't, as, as a species, lived through the First World War and the Second World War. So I'm not talking about just the numbers of the dead or wars, but there's something, something going on which is, which is, I think, endangering us as a species, not just because of climate change, but because of this amount of information that we are supposed to process all the time. And so I, I was, when I started to, uh, I mean, I obviously when I wrote the book and when I was writing the book, I never theorized about it. I never had a theory that I wanted to then sort of put into practice. But afterwards I, I, I was looking, when I started to have to talk about it and think about it in abstract ways, the fact that India as a society, although from the outside looks like a anarchic, chaotic, sort of friendly, you know, stuffed toy democracy, the fact is that it's not anarchic. The fact is that it is a society that lives in a very fine grid, not just a grid, a mesh, an iron mesh of caste. Like there's 4,000 different castes and every caste is, is bound by the iron grid and uh, there are less than 5% of transgressions or marriages outside religion, outside caste and people have to function in this way and the violence the fires that burn along these fault lines is something that we have to live with and have had to live with. Now it's become a situation of absolute horror. Every day people are being lynched, people are being killed because the government in power believes that it should be declared a Hindu nation and so on. But the characters in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, all of them, I realize now, have a sort of incendiary uh, sort of bo um, boundary running through them, a border running through them. So whether it's the border of gender, whether it's the border of religious conversion, I mean, one of the characters is called, he calls himself Saddam Hussein mm -hmm. because he was a, he was, he is a Dalit who watched his father being lynched by a mob who call themselves cow protectors. This is happening every day now in India almost. And he converts to Islam and has on his phone a video of the execution of Saddam Hussein and is very impress impressed by the disdain Saddam shows for his executioners. So he calls himself Saddam Hussein. There are, Tilotama has the border of caste running through her. The characters in Kashmir have of course national borders running through them. So through this, through these people who, who are not necessarily all sort of belonging to the poorer sections of society, Tilo and others are even middle class people, there's a spectrum. And yet, because of those borders, they, they look at this grid and begin to ask some very, very profound questions. I, in my long talking beforehand, I neglected to mention you actually have done quite a You've written a book-length essay on caste, um, the writing of um, um, B.R. Ambedkar, and actually taking issue with M.K. Gandhi on that whole issue. But so that in itself is a book that's downstairs and worth reading. Um, 
in near the end of the book, um, to the two of the central characters in this book, and, and they've lived through all of these things, and they're maybe the two most drawn to each other of any two in the book, except maybe somewhat around some of the, the baby J um, Jabil. Uh, but these two people, adults, um, there's a conversation where one decries the, what they and said, I, you know, we're gonna make up a word here, the stupidification of things. And then, and then you've written a little about that in some, in some essays too, which is something where these whole societies are, are having kind of a for, some of the same force. Could you say a little more about how this works in this book? Because the book is such an, an eloquent um, argument against that. Yeah. Well, that's a conversation between Tilotama and, and a character called Musa, who's, who's, who's her, who was her lover when they were in college, but he's a Kashmiri, and then they drifted apart and then meet again in Kashmir. Um, and he, he is, um, you know, he's, he's a militant. He's underground, and he's part of the resistance movement against the occupation. So Kashmir is the most densely uh, militarized zone in the world. Uh, and Musa is trying to explain to her how so, yeah, I said this is, it's, 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 it's hard to talk about it, but so basically one of the reasons that I, uh, if, you, if you were to visit Kashmir, for example, you realize very quickly that you can't tell the story just with, with reportage, just with human rights reports, just with a, 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 a sort of summing up of the dead or the tortured or the wounded. Because what does it mean? What does it mean to live under the boot of the military for 25 years? What does it do to the military? What does it do to the people? What does it do to the negotiators? What does it do to the, you know, all of them? And Musa is talking to Tilo and, and he says, um, you know, the thing is that the, more than freedom, we are just now fighting for dignity for our dignity. We cannot live without dignity. And so when we fight one of the world's biggest armies, as a people, we have to become as mechanical and as monolithic as the army that we face. We have to do away with our diversity. We have to, uh, we have to become stupid. You know, so that's, that's the explanation of how, and he says we cannot win this battle with our bodies, we have to recruit our souls. And so it's really about how this polarization happens. And she, uh, I mean, she's in a way um, very much, uh, very, very different from him. She's not, uh, she, she's a, a lone person, you know, who, who is alienated by the society that has kind of made her outside of it. And he, although he's fighting a resistance movement and because he's fighting, actually owns his people and belongs to them. So, I mean, I actually, I, I, I should, maybe just a paragraph I can, if I can find, I could read it to you. Yeah. So she says, uh, it says, they, they had always fitted together like pieces of an unsolved and perhaps unsolvable puzzle. 
the smoke of her into the solidness of him, the solitariness of her into the gathering of him, the strangeness of her into the straightforwardness of him, the insouciance of her into the restraint of him, the quietness of her into the quietness of him. And then, of course, there were the other parts, the ones that wouldn't fit. What happened that night was less lovemaking than lament. Their wounds were too old and too new, too different and perhaps too deep for healing. But for a fleeting moment, they were able to pool them like accumulated gambling debts and share the pain equally without naming the injuries or asking which was whose. For a fleeting moment, they were able to repudiate the world they lived in and call forth another one just as real. When, not to take anything away from that setting and its place, Kashmir in India, but I remember when I read that, and we in this country are dealing with some other realities in the last year or more, you know, months and year, um, but I, a, a phrase I had just, or just a sentence out of James Baldwin I had just read, um, where he's writing about the flower children in California in the 1960s, and he, but again, these applies in a larger way. He says, there was nothing harder for them to achieve nor that was perhaps more in this society. They were born here and there was nothing harder for them to achieve, nor was more for, feared or scorned than the idea of the soul's maturity. And um, you have Baldwin elsewhere in this book, so, um, but that's... Yeah. Baldwin here says something also very profound. He says that, and they would not believe me precisely because they knew that what I said was true. Yeah. You know, which is, which is why uh, fiction uh, is truth, Fellini said that fiction is truth, because without footnotes and without uh, any kind of factual reportage, when it's true, you know it, and then it becomes dangerous, you know? Uh, and that is why it's important for writers to remain dangerous and not to become domesticated. <laughs> You said you, you miss home, and um, I think you'll get to go there soon. Uh, and, but I know you've, you've been in North and Vancouver in Canada the last few days. So did you know your prime minister's come visit? <laughs> I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's been missing you uh, home. He is a character in this book um, in, in a certain way. We a, can't a say that, can we? <laughs> I know. We, we wouldn't. Um, you did say, I remember, literally, I do remember 20 years ago when you were in, our, in the basement of Elliott Bay and you were describing The God of Small Things, you said you wanted it to be an unfilmable book. And you have worked in film. I mean, earlier on, you, you were part of so the film world you've known. Is, Actually, is, what I said was a stubbornly visual but unfilmable book. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, is it, and, the, and the writing is visual. It is visual, but unfilmable was, yeah, there's no question, it's yeah. visual. So are we there again with this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think, like I said, you know, to me, the idea is never, I don't, I, I don't want film to be the last stop. You know, this is the last stop. Like, it could, uh, I, I mean, there's, there's, uh, uh, when I'm talking about a film off the book, no, you know, but uh, because it would be something else then. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I still, I, I think, I think the, 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 the idea is so much 
so much of uh, what happens in this place is, you know, for, for example, one of, the, one of the things apart from how do you, how do you, uh, then people ask me what it's about, I say it's about the air we breathe. It's about, you know, uh, how pe people have become frightened of, of, of actually writing about the air. And the air is full of lynchings and military occupations and poetry and music and languages and love and all of it, you know? And we should not be frightened of all of it. So uh, one of the things in, in, if you live in the north of India is that all of us on a daily basis just in our lives speak more than one language, all, always, you know? And how do you translate the cadences of the languages that, that you hear on the street and that you're interacting with? I mean, Hindi, Urdu, Kashmiri, Malayalam, Telugu, all of it the poetry and the languages, how do you, how do you kind of, without being gimmicky, produce those cadences? And then it's not just other languages, but even voices within the book who translate their own pamphlets, or there are court affidavits, there are letters, incomplete letters, there are recoveries from floods, there are notebooks, you know, so it's, it, I, I don't think you can, you can do that in a film. Yeah. You do so many things in this book. I think there's a good time to, to move to questions from, from you. Um, there's a microphone here and one over here on each side and we'll take turns if people want to ask questions and again to try and keep it in the question area. Can we get the lights up a little bit so we can see a little Hi. better? Good evening. I really enjoyed uh, The God of Small Things and I look forward to reading this. So I have a question for you that's focused entirely on the mechanics of your writing. And if you've, if you've talked about this someplace else, like a recording on YouTube or something, to refer me to that. You know, how many drafts, how many hours a day do you write? Um, do you do 25 drafts before you give out the first draft to someone else to read? Um, do you, you know, sculpt every sentence separately? You know, stuff like that. I'm very interested. Um, that's a good question. You know, I, I actually am uh, surprisingly, I don't do many drafts, and I don't generate a lot of material which I then, you know, edit out. Um, I think that's because I spend a lot of time subconsciously thinking about, about the writing, and I also, work to an audio track. It's like I hear it, you know? So, for instance, in this book, I actually read the audio book myself because of all the, I didn't want, you know, actors to put on accents and imitate things, but, but um, it was, when I read it, I realized that I'd already written it to an audio track, you know? So, I don't, I, I, yeah, I do uh, sort of, uh, by the time a sentence comes out, it's gone buzzing in my head for so long that it isn't, uh, I, I, what I do is I deepen, the, I deepen the work, but I don't generate a lot and edit it. But when you, when you see the structure of it, it's very complex, complex but 
Like I don't start at the beginning and end at the end, but many things are happening simultaneously and the layers and the echoes and all of that. It's really like, um, I mean, uh, I, I, I've been talking about this, that to, yes, the book is set in Delhi and in Kashmir, but I'm not talking about the geography of the book. I'm talking about the, the narrative. The idea of the narrative is very much like the idea of, a, of, a, of a, an Indian city. You know, it has an ancient part. It has, it has uh, new, uh, newly planned parts which are ambushed. It has unauthorized structures. It has illegal, illegal citizens. It has blind alleys, you know? So it has a form which is constantly being ambushed, but it still has a form because it isn't like a television series or something which you just keep adding to. And the structure, I mean, to me, my, my training as an architect and as an urban planner somehow ha has a very important role to play in how I structure things. Structure is extremely important to me when I write. My question is political in nature. I've read God of Small Things, and I've seen your videos, but I haven't read everything, but I will, because I like you. <laughs> How to tell a shattered story by slowly becoming everybody? No, by slowly becoming everything. And when I read that, I went, yes, she's <laughs> one of us. Yes, we're, one of, we're all together, everything. Do you believe that we can rise up and change this? Sorry? Do you believe we can rise up and change this in a peaceful, transformative, compassionate, loving way? Do you believe we can feed the people, house the people, care for the people, love the people, educate the people, nurture the people, and fulfill the dream we all share? The, the, oops. <laughs> the, the, uh, this, this how to tell a shattered story by slowly becoming everybody, no, by slowly becoming everything, is, uh, is something that is found in Thilo, one of Thilo's, Thilothama's notebooks, something that she writes. And uh, it's very much part of uh, one of the great influences on me uh, as a storyteller was this particular dance form in, in Kerala, which is where I come from, called Kadakali, which is called, it's, it means the storyteller. And where the dancer actually becomes every, everything, you know, he's the river, the mirror, the woman, the epic, the mountain, the leaf, the monkey on the path, you know. And uh, do I believe we can rise up? You know, I, I, I believe that we must always be a society that uh, every society should be a society that has an engine that is longing for justice. But I don't believe in an overarching world ideology where everybody must rise up together because eventually that becomes somebody gets power over somebody else, you know, while you're trying, I mean, while you're trying to make a single movement all over the world people get left out. I believe very much in local resistance, you know, uh, in, in, in people fighting 
on the land, where they are, which is, which is what I have spent the last 20 years of my life writing about and fighting about and <laughs> traveling through. But we must always dream that, what you said. Is there not room for both actions, global and local? There is, but I, th I mean, I think that it's, uh, I mean, those are the big things that we are, people are trying to do, like the climate change and Paris is very important, you know? Yeah, well, certainly here, you're not doing it. Your president is not doing it. <laughs> Hi. Um, the beginning of Chapter 7, The Landlord. Sorry? The beginning of Chapter 7, The Landlord, is yeah. a very abrupt transition from third person to first person, and I'm reading a completely new story. So I have a two-part question. One, did this begin as a story about Kashmir, or did this begin as a story about Anjum and how did they meet? And then the second part, how many years did it take to write this story for those stories to meet? It took about uh, 10 years in the working of this book. So, so the story actually, I mean, if you're talking about how I wrote it, it didn't really begin with Anjum. It began on the pavement in Jantar Mantar where this baby is discovered. And Jantar Mantar is like the nerve center, as I said, of all these resistance movements. And uh, the, te the, the chapter I read is called The Tenant, but just before that, the chapter she's referring to is called The Landlord. And uh, that is in first person, and it's the, uh, it's the voice of a, of a very sophisticated, uh, highly educated, upper caste intelligence officer. Who, who talks about, uh, you know, who, who, who in, he too has a border running through him. He's part the voice of the state, but not the state today, the state, the secular Indian state, the sophisticated kind of uh, deep state, you know, that has managed these conflicts, created these conflicts, and has a more sophisticated view of how to handle them than the current government does. And, and the, the, re the reason that he appears in first person is because, firstly, he insisted on that, but <laughs> also because he's the voice of the state. You know, he's the, he's the guy who just can look at a massacre, even in real life, and, and feel distance from it, and take a historical perspective, and not get so involved and emotional, and you know? So he's the voice of power over all of us, in a way, and then, the other half of him is a, a sort of um, shambling, lovelorn, increasingly drunk person. So, uh, so, so, so the, but, but he's not the only person who's in first person, because there are lots of, as I said, court affidavits and letters and fragments of things, but he's the, he, he has the authority as well as the, lack of authority of the state in him. Michael. Quick question. This is a seven part question. <laughs> Just this is what? Uh, quick question. Is it hard to balance your morals as the more success that you have? And are you ever fearful because you're in the public eye? Sorry, I didn't get it. I said, is it hard to balance your morals as, as you get, become more successful? And are you ever scared? because you're in the public eye? Oh, 
um, it's, it's a double-edged knife, you know? So on the one hand, I have protection because I'm in the public eye, but on the other hand, because I'm in the public eye, I'm, I mean, it's true for everyone, but open to major attack for the most frivolous reasons sometimes, you know, because it gets people into the news and so on. But um, it's, a, uh, you know, the, for example, my whole 20 years of political writing began after I wrote The God of Small Things in 97. You know, I won the Booker Prize and I was on the cover of every magazine. And at that moment, the government changed. It became a Hindu nationalist right-wing government and they did a series of nuclear tests. And I, I knew that if I did not say anything, it would be assumed that I supported those tests because I was sort of being portrayed as the new face of the global India and so on. And so I wrote an essay called The End of Imagination, which, in which I, I basically came out against the tests and against nationalism and uh, you know, the idea of Hindu, India as a Hindu nation. And of course, I was immediately kicked off my fairy princess pedestal <laughs> by some people. But it led to an embrace by others and for 20 years writing the things I wrote. But, you know, uh, just for, a, for example, just a week before this book was published, um, a month before this book was published uh, in Kashmir, an army officer tied a Kashmiri civilian to a, to a jeep an armored jeep and used him as a human shield and drove him around five or six, for five or six hours through various villages. It created a great deal of publicity. The army rewarded the officer who, or awarded the officer, honored the officer who had done this. It was by no means the worst thing the Indian army has done in Kashmir, by no means, but it just became very public. And then a member of parliament who's also an um, a, a actor in Bollywood made a statement saying that uh, Arundhati Roy should be used as a human shield in Kashmir. She should be tied to the you know, army jeep and so on. Of course, it created a lot of uh, you know, debate and then TV channels had real debates about whether or not I should be tied to. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a circus, the whole thing, sometimes. But uh, I think you, you, you have to be, uh, you have to learn how to live in that society. It took me time. I, I, I mean, after, after I wrote The God of Small Things, I, I, I did wonder, you know, whether I would ever regret writing that book for the fame and the position I was put in and the fact that I didn't want to leave, you know, I didn't want to go and live with other famous people. So then everyone I was living with had to deal with the fame and the whole thing. But everything is, uh, you know, it took a bit of time, but it's okay now. Actually, in the book, you, uh, in the acknowledgement, you have, uh, I think, seven people who you thank for keeping you out of prison so far. <laughs> yeah. uh, because I'm actually, every, every few years, I don't know what uh, is in my karma, 
but every few years, five male lawyers get together and file a criminal case against me. <laughs> so the first was uh, the god of small things. Five lawyers in Kerala filed a case against me for obscenity and corrupting public morality. <laughs> so uh, it was a criminal case, and I had to appear in court. And uh, meanwhile, by the time the date came up, uh, you know, the, the Booker Prize had happened, and the judge comes up and says, every time this case comes before me, I get chest pains. And then, but it went on for years. The second case was uh, uh, five, five lawyers said I had tried to kill five men, that I had tried to kill them outside the gates of the Supreme Court. That went on. I actually went to jail for a day for that. And then now, again, I'm, I'm under criminal trial for contempt of court because of an essay I wrote about a professor who's 90% dis disabled, who is in prison, accused of being a terrorist, a Maoist terrorist. And uh, I wrote an article called Professor POW, saying, you know, you've got to give him bail. And, and for that, five male lawyers appealed to a judge to, to charge me with contempt of court for trying to influence the process of justice. So that's happening now. So that is the team of lawyers, yes. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that this was, um, in a way, an experiment in the form of fiction. And I was wondering if you could... If that it was That what? this book was an experiment, you were experimenting yeah, yeah. with the form. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that and then talk, maybe give us some examples of how you do that in the book. Yeah. Well, um, it, it was, it was um, I, wanted, I wanted to see how you could, I, I just didn't want to write a book where you have characters whose lives are being played out against a political background or a background of some kind, you know? Sometimes I wanted the background to be the foreground. I wanted the city to become a character. I wanted, I wanted to, be able to break, uh, to be able to walk, so, so I'm talking about two cities. One is the city itself, which is the geography, geographical city, and the other is the narrative form of a city. And I, I wanted to be able to uh, never walk past somebody, you know? If there's a guard who's guarding the Honda City poster because, now, the, the Honda City hoarding on a public toilet, the guard is guarding the, the, the hoarding so that people don't desecrate it, but the guard has a story, right? Where has he come from? Who is he? And so even though I knew that it would test the, um, you know, um, the, the idea that readers are used to that there has to be these main characters and then you don't just stop by and smoke a cigarette with the guy you're walking past. But I wanted to do that. And I wanted to trust the, the reader to want to do that too, you know? So how do you write it in a way that um, it, it's, it's not baby food, you know? It's not pre-digested, easy to swallow. You've got to stop too, and, 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 and you've got to be able to uh, reorient yourself. You know? um, 
I was curious, I've heard a lot of authors say that when they write, they can't think about the readers because it makes them censor what they're writing. And I feel like when I've heard you speak, um, you have so much that you, you share through your writing and that you want to share through your writing. Um, so I was curious for you, what role does the reader play in your writing process? How do you think, you think about, about them? Is it different when you're writing an essay versus a fiction novel? Oh yeah, it's very different. I mean, I um, the, the essays are always um, written, I mean, when, when they are collected together, people might not get the sense of how urgent they were when they were written, because they're always written at a time and things are closing in. And, and I needed to open a space because, you know, the army, the paramilitary was being sent into the forest or court order had come, whatever. So there's a, the, the essays are an argument and an urgent intervention. The, the, both my novels have never been that, you know, they are, like offerings, they are universes. So I don't think of readers as in, readers as a market, but surely there is, it's like writing a letter to someone, you know? More like writing a letter of love to someone, inviting them into a universe, inviting them to walk through that universe. And, uh, but there was another aspect when I was writing this book, which is that it's really becoming, it's really becoming extremely frightening. I've never been so, so anxious and so, so, so worried, not just on my behalf, but on behalf of so many people in India. I mean, now it's come to a stage where, you know, day before yesterday, a Muslim boy was just pulled off a train and lynched. People are being, you know, they have these WhatsApp groups that deliberately spread false rumors, and they go and beat somebody to death because there's a rumor that they've eaten beef and all of that. So, when I was writing this book, surely every time I thought of the consequences or what every sentence can be uh, argued over or come, I could not have written it. So I had to tell myself, just write it however you want to write it and keep it in your drawer. Don't publish it. And I did that. And then the writer's ego came along and said, do publish it, you know? <laughs> so, but yeah, I did have to n not think about that when I was writing. Thank you. You're welcome. I wanted to thank you so much for writing The God of the Small Things. It was the first book that when I read it, I felt like I could relate to the characters inside their head and the twins' grief, as devastating as it was. Um, you know, I found some truth in it, even though I'm so different than them by looking at me and privileged. But I wanted to ask you, because um, even reading that book, I cried very hard, but yet I also laughed. And I wanted to ask you about your playfulness and your, um, I think, optimism that runs through uh, your works, just like you'll have a kidnapped baby and then hearing about these ants marching off with these huge pieces of cake. And um, it almost is like an act of bravery, maybe. You're also an activist and you see all this tragedy and how do you find that balance? 
You know, I think again, uh, to me, the idea of telling a story, whether it's a, fic a story in fiction or even when I'm writing my essays, you know, there's always a range of things going on and a range of emotions. And to me, it would be like singing a song where there's only one note if there wasn't all that, you know? And if you didn't see all that. I grew up in Kerala where the God of Small Things is set. I grew up on the banks of a river. I grew up in a village where there was no, there was, there was no restaurant, no cinema hall, no shop, no TV, nothing except the river and the fish and the insects and the worms and, you know, I knew every plant and now I live in, a city and I still see all the insects and I still see all the, 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 the book is full of uh, animals. This book is full of animals. Much of it is set in the graveyard where the dead and the living have a porous border. Even when I, I mean, even when I have gone into the forest and lived with the gorillas or walked in wherever I've been, it's never one emotion, you know, it's, and especially amongst people who are actually fighting with their backs to the wall, there are moments of, in Kashmir, I mean, so much of the time we just spend laughing, you know, it's because we know, eventually we know that whatever it is, even if we don't win, we don't want to be on their side, you know, so we, we, we are, we're doing what we believe in and what we are and therefore will be, um, uh, you know, it, it's not, uh, someone once asked me, but don't you get depressed when you see the state of the world? I said, well, it's like asking an ant who's trying to cross the highway if they're worried about the traffic, you know? <laughs> like, have a sense of scale. I'm just, you know, not that person that is going to, rule the world or change the world. I mean, I'm doing what I can do and, and, and I, have to, uh, I have to find good things about it. One of my books of essays is actually dedicated to those who have learned to divorce hope from reason. <laughs> hey, how are you? Um, my, my dad came to this country from India in the 1970s as an Indian Muslim partly because of he knew he had to work 10 times harder as his Hindu classmates to get the same opportunities. And fast forward to today, and a lot of your themes in the book, I've gotten about halfway through it, seem to touch on this, but do you see an equitable future in, for Indian Muslims? Because it's, I mean, I don't know if, it, if you would even argue if it's worse now than it was then or not, but what do you see in, as far as you mentioned a lot with your characters as well? Oh God, I wish I didn't have to answer that because I'm really, uh, you know, I'm so, uh, I'm so, so worried about uh, that, you know, I mean, every day you're, you, you, you know, the prime minister is visiting, visiting Trump here. Few, a few years ago, he was banned from coming here. I mean, not that this country is the, you know, uh, paragon of virtue, but he was not <laughs> allowed to come because of what he's done. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that, you know, uh, in 2002, when he was the chief minister of Gujarat, Muslims were lynched on the street. Women were raped and killed. In fact, when I was in 
speaking in New York, one of the, one of the people in the audience was the daughter of a, a man called Ehsan Jafri, who was a former MLA in Gujarat, who, in whose house, at the time of the massacre, 60 people or so took shelter, thinking that he's a, you know, he's a middle class, former politician, nothing's going to happen, and a mob of 10, 10 or 20,000 people gathered. He made hundreds of phone calls, and finally, the mob pulled him out and hacked him to death. And all the people were killed, and only his 80-year-old widow is alive, and she's been filing case after case, but you cannot, you cannot deal with fascism in a court of law, you know? So uh, today, every day, people are being lynched, killed, beaten to death, and it's, it's, it's come to the stage where you're worrying if someone's luggage falls off the luggage rack in the train, and if they're a Muslim, anything can happen. If they're a Dalit, anything can happen. There are vigilantes on the streets, there are mobs on the streets. Um, you know, what's happening is that, that uh, the, the great spectacular economic growth, which has not led, surely it's led to, to, to some people becoming extremely rich, but it has not led to the bulk of people getting jobs, and all that anger is being directed downwards to the most vulnerable people. So the only hope is that, that at some point people realize that it's not helping them, all this hatred. You know, and there are, I mean, as we speak today, there are, there are protest rallies all over the world about uh, Modi's visit here. But, you know, I, I, I feel that uh, the world does need to pay attention because it's not, you know, it's not just there's a huge difference between Modi and Trump. Trump is an outlier who's come in for all the reasons you know, but Modi belongs to an organization called the RSS Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, which was formed in 1925, uh, was, was, uh, you know, is and was deeply influenced by Mussolini's black shirts, believes India is a Hindu nation, has hundreds of thousands of volunteers, has publications, schools, rewriting history books, all the big institutions are peopled with their people now. So it's, it's, a, it's a tide that's rising from the bottom, you know, and the people that are lynching and so on are ordinary people. They're not policemen or anything else. So it's a very, very frightening scenario, very, very frightening. But as long as the market is open, as long as it's free market-friendly democracy, you're not going to hear of this. Tomorrow, if India, the Indian government nationalizes mineral resources, you'd hear about all this tomorrow, you know? Yeah, I think with the people who are standing, we'll conclude with you, so the four of you, it looks like. So go ahead. I haven't read the book yet, but looking at the title, I'm an English teacher. We're teaching, I just taught 1984. So the Ministry of Plenty, the Ministry of Truth, the Ministry of Peace, the Ministry of Love. Did George Orwell have any influence, or what influence does George Orwell have on you? Well, actually, the Ministry of Artus Happiness is not a satirical title. Um, it is really about, it's not at all, it, it, because eventually, to me, the idea that we as a species need to really re 
understand the rest or, or rewrite the recipes of happiness that are being handed down to us, you know? And it's about, I mean, Anjum, who's one of the main characters in the book, she eventually ends up building a, a guest house in a graveyard, and to which uh, many people come. And it's about fi finding happiness in extremely unexpected places. It's about the fragility of that and about the wisdom of people who know to recognize it sometimes, you know. Although I'm an admirer of Orwell. <laughs> Thank you for being here and uh, being away from home and family, so it's appreciated. Um, there's a sentence in the beginning of your book that's kind of stuck with me throughout the book, and it's uh, about Andrew's mother discovering who he is and um, not having the right Urdu language to be able to describe it. And it's about, can one live outside of language? Which I thought was a fascinating sentence to have there, because hijras, hmm. traditions are passed on only orally, either through song or language. So is that purposely placed there? What do you mean by that sentence? And does it have any connection to your work with displaced and you know, it, groups it, in India? Uh, I mean, it, it, she talks about it, because in Urdu, the language that she speaks, everything, not just every living thing, but everything has a gender, except her child. I mean, if everything is either masculine or feminine, you know? And she, and, and so it's like, there isn't even a language there, you know, just a word doesn't make a language. Hijra doesn't make a language. So it is about also how, language limits the imagination, you know, and how uh, it is another grid that, that forces people to, to live within it, you know, and in India, of course, uh, language is so replete with notions of caste and gender and all of that. As I've been reading your book, I've been thinking of the responsibility that comes with fiction um, as compared to nonfiction, um, especially because you create characters with psyches and lived experiences. Um, so in this book, there are many characters which have uh, a social location that is very different from yours, um, and it's really marginalized. Um, like hijras are not only oppressed, but they're also like really fetishized in South Asia. Um, so how do you manage that responsibility, or how do you hold yourself accountable as you create um, these characters, which are um, marginalized? Well, you have to, well, you, you just have to do the best that you can, you know? Because uh, when you, I mean, the idea of writing fiction or being a poet in the world means living without a skin, you know? And so you have to, uh, you, you have to believe that at least I have to believe that at the core of, at the foundation of, of my imagination is the idea of justice, you know? So that's how you have to do it. Okay, our last question. Thank you for being here. Um, and I was wondering if you have an opinion on the Gorkaland agitation that's going on in Darjeeling. Sorry? I was wondering if you have an opinion on the Gorkaland agitation that's going the on Gorkaland in Darjeeling. The Gorkaland agitation. Well, I, I, I don't want to really talk about that here, you know, because what happens with me is that I say something and then it's all 
half on Twitter, and then there are five lawyers waiting there to <laughs> like, start filing a case against me. <laughs> okay. I will. Yeah. Back to the book. So I'll just read you five minutes. Um, this is, this is uh, from a chapter called The Nativity. And it's about the, I mean, we'll see what it's about. It was peacetime, or so they said. All morning, a hot wind had whipped through the city streets, driving sheets of grit, soda bottle caps, and beady stubs before it, smacking them into car windscreens and cyclist eyes. When the wind died, the sun, already high in the sky, burned through the haze. And once again, the heat rose and shimmered on the streets like a belly dancer. People waited for the thunder shower that always follows a dust storm, but it never came. Fire raged through a swathe of huts huddled together on the river bank, gutting more than 2,000 in an instant. Still, the amaltas bloomed, a brilliant, defiant yellow. Each blazing summer, it reached up and whispered to the hot brown sky, fuck you. <laughs> she appeared quite suddenly a little after midnight. No angels sang, no wise men brought gifts, but a million stars rose in the east to herald her arrival. One moment she wasn't there, and the next, there she was on the concrete pavement in a crib of litter, silver cigarette foil, a few plastic bags, and empty packets of Uncle Chips. She lay in a pool of light under a column of swarming, neon-lit mosquitoes, naked. Her skin was blue-black, sleek as a baby seal's. She was wide awake but perfectly quiet, unusual for someone so tiny. Perhaps in those first short months of her life, she had already learned that tears her tears, at least, were futile. A thin white horse tethered to the railing, a small dog with mange, a concrete-colored lizard, two palm-striped squirrels who should have been asleep, and from her hidden perch, a she-spider with a swollen egg sac watched over her. Other than that, she seemed to be utterly alone. Around her, the city sprawled for miles, thousand-year-old sorceress, dozing but not asleep, even at this hour. Gray flyovers snaked out of her Medusa skull, tangling and untangling under the yellow sodium haze. Sleeping bodies of homeless people lined their high, narrow pavements, head to toe, head to toe, head to toe, looping into the distance. Old secrets were folded into the furrows of her loose parchment skin. Each wrinkle was a street, each street a carnival, each arthritic joint a crumbling amphitheater where stories of love and madness, stupidity, delight, and unspeakable cruelty had been played out for centuries. But this was to be the dawn of her resurrection. Her new masters wanted to hide her knobby varicose veins under imported fishnet stockings, cram her withered tits into saucy padded bras, and jam 
her aching feet into pointed, high-heeled shoes. They wanted her to swing her stiff old hips and reroute the edges of her grimace upwards into a frozen, empty smile. It was the summer grandma became a whore. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Arundhati Roy spoke with the Elliott Bay Book Company's Rick Simonson about her writing process, her life over the last 20 years, and her anxiously awaited new novel, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Sonia Harris recorded this Town Hall Seattle event on June 27th. Tune in again soon. <laughs>